Well, we are all feeling the squeeze from inflation these days, if there was any doubt about that. Take a look at the latest Ipsos survey out this morning. Polling conducted exclusively for Global News shows that 72% of families with kids are worried about putting food on the table. For more on these findings, we are joined now by Gregory Jack, who's the Ipsos Vice President of Public Affairs in Canada. Gregory, thanks for being with us. Good morning. These findings show a lot of concern, it sounds like, right across Canada. What did you find? Well, certainly this is not an issue that uh, is unique to one demographic group of Canadians. Canadians across the board are worried. But as you point out, it's it's people with families uh, and, and kids that are more worried than others. And, you know, you point out the finding about um, people struggling to put food on the table or worrying about that. I mean, that's a must-have sort of thing. We also found that, you know, people are deferring things like vacations and that sort of thing. But the, the combination of interest rates rising and inflationary pressures are really putting a squeeze on Canadians across the country, especially those with families. Right. What about younger Canadians? Because this isn't inflation isn't really something that they've ever seen in their lifetime, is it? No, and, and, and this is an interesting finding for our poll. Older Canadians are much less worried. Now, of course, for them, they, they might remember the period in the 70s and the 80s when, when they went through an inflationary high interest rate period. Younger Canadians, particularly those you know aged 18 to 34, uh, they have no memory of this. But it's it's the Gen Xers, the 35 to 54 year olds, who are more likely to have uh, kids at home and are more likely to be in that phase of their life where they've invested in a house and have a mortgage. Uh, they're the ones who are most concerned. Interesting. So, are, are there ways like how are people dealing with it? Do they think it's going to go down? Are they looking for ways to adapt? Yeah, we, we found three in ten Canadians said they were going to ask their employer for a raise. Uh, people are looking for their employers to, to help them by, by, of course, increasing their wages. Uh, they are also, also, as I said, deferring things like vacations, um, you know, possibly driving less, buying less gas. Um, but it's a, a culmination of things that are, that are really piling up. Uh, groceries are one of the major concerns. And, of course, you can't really defer that. But maybe people are going to make decisions on what they buy at the grocery store a little bit differently as well. So lots of things that are happening at this time and, and lots of ways Canadians are trying to, to cope with it. They're also perhaps looking to government to, to help them out. Certainly in, in Quebec, uh, the government sent a, a check to uh, Canadians who made less than $100,000. In Alberta, there's been a deferral of the, uh, the gasoline tax. So governments are also being looked to to help solve this problem. Are Canadians thinking about perhaps changing jobs, changing careers to try to you know make more money? Yeah, we've seen a little bit of that as well. Um, particularly you know among younger people who, who are much more willing to change jobs. As, as people get older, they're, they're, uh, or as we go through the generations, the willingness to change jobs goes down, which I suppose is not entirely surprising because people are become more, you know, um, uh, they're, they're with the company a little bit longer. But um, asking for a raise and, and then certainly looking for other opportunities um, if they can't get the, the wages they need in their current job or industry, those are things people are considering as well. Okay, and what about that summer holiday? Are people still going to take one? Well, people have, have said that they would consider deferring their, their vacation. That's one of the easiest things you can do in terms of saving money because it's, it's a nice-to-have as opposed to a must-have. Um, I think it was around half of Canadians who said that they would, uh, would be looking to defer their summer holiday or not take one. Uh, but as I said, Canadians are looking at a bunch of measures, that being one of them, um, and other measures uh, like driving less or, or using less gasoline, maybe buying their food a little bit differently. And then, as I said, you know, looking to governments for aid and also trying to solve the situation themselves by asking for a higher wage from their employer. Of course, the ironic thing is that, you know, if wages go up, 
um, that's going to perpetuate the inflationary cycle. And so um, there really isn't an easy solution to this. I mean, um, governments are trying to solve it. Banks are trying to solve it with interest rate increases. But there's no magic bullet to, um, to bring the cost of living back down. All right, Gregory, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You know, sometimes I start to think I've been doing this job too long because of how cynical I get about some of these consumer stories. But then I'm reminded also about why we are all so cynical about big corporations sometimes and how consumers get taken advantage of. And the latest example of this is the story that just about made my head explode yesterday when I first saw it. If you love going to movies, and I do love going to movies, it's kind of like that one thing I really love going out and doing, it's going to cost us more to do that because Cineplex announced yesterday that they are introducing a new $1.50 booking fee that is going to apply to each ticket purchased through its mobile app and website. And so I thought, let me get this straight. You moved us all online. You needed us to do that so that you could cut costs at the actual movie theater, you know, save money on wage costs. So you forced us all to get the app and do this booking and do all this stuff online. And now you're going to charge us for that too, even though you were trying to convince us this was the better, easier, faster way to do it. And now they're going to charge us for it, $1.50. So David Friend's an entertainment reporter at Canadian Press, and he was talking to Bruce Claggett on the Jill Bennett Show yesterday. He talked about where this fee is coming from. A few years ago, before the pandemic, Cineplex had a few options, such as reserve seats, where you paid an extra dollar and you got to pick your seat. During COVID, that all went away because everybody had to have a reserve seat or they wouldn't have a seat at all. Um, so that is something that they lost. I, I feel, they haven't said this, but the, the booking fee is partly to regain that. The way they're positioning it is the money that you're paying is going towards sort of get, getting a better website for them and other sort of interactive options. But yeah, at this point in time, there are Netflix has, is premiering movies at home. There has been a move by Hollywood to premiere some films at home for rental, but that has started to shift in recent months. The big screen is where Hollywood wants their movies because they realize that these streaming services aren't creating franchises very strongly and very often. And they also are making $200 million movies that Netflix puts on there, not make their money back necessarily. Um, that's where Cineplex is putting its bet right now. But from what I'm seeing online, just people reacting to this, they tend to not, generally speaking, people don't want to see an extra fee. But there is a lot of negativity today over this decision, and I get it. This was a bad time, in my opinion, for Cineplex to put this out there. Oh, yes, it was a bad time for them to do this. That's David Friend, who's an entertainment reporter at the Canadian Press. So they want us to all go to the movie theater. People think, oh, I'm going to support the industry. I'm going to go to the movie theater. And this is when they ding us with this price. It's crazy. He also talked about how AMC, south of the border, may have played a role in all of this. Cineplex has kind of complicated this fee because if you have a scene card, you don't pay $1.50. You only pay a dollar. And if you join their monthly Cine Club, which is like a Netflix-esque type subscription where you get a bunch of goodies for a flat fee, you don't pay any booking fee at all. So it's really complicated for a consumer who's just trying to get a ticket. But the reasoning behind this, in my opinion, is they saw what was happening with AMC theaters earlier this year. When AMC put the Batman, the latest DC Comics blockbuster, um, in theaters, every ticket had something that was called... Um, basically uh, a variable pricing. And the thinking behind that concept is Batman is so popular that everyone's going to want to see it opening weekend. So we're going to charge an extra buck, buck 50 for every ticket for no reason at all. 
it was they didn't even call it a booking fee. So if you if you had ordered online, you already had a booking fee. So it was just another fee on top of that fee. So Cineplex watches what's happening outside Canada, and I think it, you know every once in a while they go, okay, well this will probably fly in Canada too. People will still show up. Oh, that's David Friend, entertainment reporter at Canadian Press, talking on the Jill Bennett show yesterday. You know what? I think it's time to break out my DVD collection. Time to stay home and start watching my DVDs again. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Can British Columbia handle the economic and environmental side effects of shutting down old mines in this province? Like reclaiming those sites could cost billions of dollars. How prepared are we? It's something the Auditor General has been looking into, and Michael Pickup, BC's Auditor General, joins us now to talk about that. Thank you for being here. Oh, happy to be here. Good morning. What did you take a look at here in this latest report of yours? Sure. So, uh, you know, in the most simple terms, we look to see whether adequate policies and procedures were put in place to address key key environmental risks that had been identified in 2016 and to see whether the framework was in place to manage uh, public safety and environmental risks of abandoned mines. So really two two key objectives uh, set out for this work. Okay. And what did you find? Yeah, so happily we found that, you know, the the ministry did indeed develop adequate policies and procedures to address environmental risks and developed a framework to manage public safety and environmental concerns at abandoned mines. But we did note that, you know, there there were some things um, that could still be done um, better and we made five recommendations to continue to improve. Right. There have been concerns in other provinces, haven't there, about the amount of money provinces have on hand to reclaim old sites. Like in Alberta, they're talking about oil wells. In BC, we're talking about mines. Do we have enough money to clean up these sites if we need to? Sure. So, you know, we call that sort of the reclamation security, if you will, and we did look at that. And happily, um, over the last five years, a policy was developed. And what we saw was a decrease between the liabilities um, uh, and securities held at that difference. So currently they're sitting on, the government is sitting on hold, holding $2.31 billion, um, in securities on a liability of $3.45 billion. So there's still that difference of $1.14 billion, but uh, we did note in the audit that that has come down by $430 million uh, over the last uh, five years. So we made a recommendation that they continue um, to do work on that and to focus on that. Okay, do we have a lot of abandoned mines in this province? Sure. So, you know, yeah, there there are a number of abandoned mines and, and certainly, um, you know, that is one of the areas where I think the government still has work left to do because uh, they have not put a risk-based approach to address environmental concerns at abandoned mines yet in place. Um, so they looked at uh, putting an approach in to deal with public safety concerns at the abandoned mines, um, but not on the environmental concerns. So still, still work left to be done. So we did make a recommendation on that and um, the government did accept it. So there should be more work coming on that. Right, So, because we, we have to close that gap, right? Have to make sure there's enough money to look after these. Um, well, and, and, you know, the government did, did put um, to their credit a reclamation security policy uh, in place. And so that was a uh, that was a development to have that uh, security policy in place. And now it's to uh, continue to work away at that difference because um, they do want to obviously uh, decrease that difference. So the exposure isn't as great. So is this something that the Auditor General's office kind of looks into occasionally? I know there was something similar done about five or six years ago. 
Yeah, in 2016, you know, it was a, a different story. You know, we made um, significant recommendations and it wasn't a good story. And, uh, and, you know, this time around, we came back here six six years later to look at uh, what the government had did. And it's a much different story now. And so, you know, if you look at our, our summary page, we probably found, you know, a good 20 positive things um, that were really done. Um, and we re- resulted in a positive conclusion, which was not the case in 2016 when it was fairly negative, if you will, and uh, identified a lot of work to be done. So, you know, to the credit of government, they've, uh, they took that audit and did lots of work. Is there enough oversight then in the Auditor General's opinion, or is there still, what areas still need more work to be done? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, the work that continues to be done is is, is certainly uh, on the abandoned mines, as I said. Um, you know, they need to do more work there. They need, they still need to do things like update the historical permits with enforceable language. Um, they've modernized about 26 of them uh, so far, but still lots left to be done. And then to continue to pay attention to that um, reclamation security, um, and then continue to um, monitor major mines for compliance and to formalize the geotechnical inspection. So that's sort of the summary, if you will, of the five recommendations that we made um, in 30 seconds or less, and um, they've, accepted those recommenda- they've accepted those recommendations and laid out a course of action to address those. That was a good description in 30 seconds or less. It must, <laughs> it must feel to you sometimes that your work never ends. There's always something else for you to dig into. Yeah, you know, um, I've been Auditor General of British Columbia now, you know, after having come from Nova Scotia, where I I did the same work there. And uh, so this is my 23rd month here, and this is our 22nd report to the legislature um, since I've been here. So lots of great work by our teams and lots of things to do. And, you know, when you think of the size of the size of government and all that they do, you know, there will will be work for us to do um, continuously. And, um, you know, we continue to have great output uh, thanks to the work of the people here in my office. How do you decide what you look into? Yeah, you know, that that is the number one question that I as Auditor General uh, get asked. And uh, as I mentioned, I was uh, Auditor General for six years in Nova Scotia, and it was the same thing there. So same question on on both coasts. And it, it really is a process of looking at uh, the risks, you know, looking at um, things that might be complex, like this mining uh, where we knew. Uh, there were issues, so it's looking at the uh, size, um, the importance to the economy, the importance to people. So if you look at, you know, some of the audits we did this winter on housing, um, you know, related to a pan- related to the pandemic and safe spaces. So, you know, we tend to be all over the place uh, by design. If government does it, you know, we can, we can audit it. So it's, you know, things that uh, matter from a dollar and cents perspective, but it's also things that matter from, a, you know, whether it's vulnerable people, um, or other populations as well. And, you know, if government does it, we can be there. Interesting work. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, happy to join you and thank and uh, thank you for your interest. That's Michael Pickup, who's BC's Auditor General. Twenty, what's the twenty three reports in the twenty four months that he has been here? That is uh, quite the output that he's got going there. This latest report looking into the Mines Ministry and improved oversight and says we're close. We're pretty good when it comes to having money set aside to reclaim old mining sites, but there is still a gap. billion in securities to make it happen, but the estimate for the cleanup 
is about $3.5 billion. So there is still work to be done. And, you know, this has been a huge problem in provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, where they have a problem with old oil wells, like abandoned by companies that go out of business or no longer needed. And then the government's kind of left holding the bill for reclaiming some of those sites. And the costs can be astronomical for that. You know, a lot of people were pleased to see that in the last election platform for the Trudeau Liberals, they had promised about $4.5 billion over five years in a new kind of mental health transfer to the provinces and territories. There was a lot of urgency around this, too. A lot of people have been saying, we all have been saying, we've talked about it on the show, that we need more supports uh, for mental health issues right across the province, right across the country. Well, that money, though, hasn't been very forthcoming. Let's put it that way. In fact, there's an initial $875 million that was supposed to have been spent by now, but somehow it has not. In fact, people don't know what has happened to it. Well, joining us now is Sarah Kennell, who's the National Director of Public Policy at the Canadian Mental Health Association. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good morning. This sounds like it's quite a disappointment. Like, have you been wondering where is this money? 100%. Yeah, you know, we were really inspired during the last federal election when not only the Liberal Party, but also all major political parties, um, you know, across the political spectrum, spoke out so passionately and meaningfully about mental health and substance use issues. We know that the pandemic has had such a, you know, a devastating toll on Canadians' mental health that it was really, it felt like the moment to um, come out in support of mental health. And sadly, since the election, we just haven't seen that translate into financial commitment. Were provinces counting on it? Like, were like plans being made to use this money? Yeah, I think that, you know, once it it translates not only from a political commitment during a campaign into the mandate letter of the newly created Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, which is a first in Canadian history, you know, there are a lot of hopes set around what this means from a provincial perspective in terms of how funds will flow and what that will mean in terms of improving access to care for people. So what has been the reality? Like, have people asked, where is this money? What does the government have to say about this? Yeah, so people are asking a lot of questions now. You know, Minister Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, was called before the Health Committee in Parliament last week to, to kind of explain why there hasn't been movement to establish this new Canada mental health transfer. Um, and what we're hearing is that the delay is because we're waiting to establish accountability measures to ensure that when funds do flow to provinces and territories, that it's, it's possible to, to understand where those funds are flowing. Um, and we certainly agree with that, but we also know it's time to get the ball rolling and that these things take time to create. Yeah, I would say a lot of people would probably agree with that. So Sarah, where do we need this money? What, what should it go for? Yeah, we know historically that mental health care and mental health services just haven't been part of our public universal health care system. So services like counseling and psychotherapy, substance use treatments, um, those types of supports just aren't part of the public system, meaning that if you present yourself um, to a clinic that, you know, presenting your, your health card, you won't have cost coverage for those. And we think that's the biggest gap area. So we're really looking for this funding to um, create the resources for provinces to build in support, public support for services like counseling and psychotherapy and, and free substance use treatments. Um, We also know there are significant gaps in access to community help for people who are most vulnerable in our communities. It's hard to maintain that level, though, of intensity, isn't it, Sarah, if, if you can't 
if you can't get this money flowing, plans get made, and then perhaps plans fall by the wayside. Yeah, and that's what we don't want. We know already our system is so patchwork and hard to navigate. And and when funding does run out, then services disappear. And it's often charities, nonprofit organizations like CMHAs on the ground that are providing this care. And so that's why permanent, sustainable, long-term core funding for community-based mental health services is just so critically needed. So are you hoping that the provinces also start asking these questions about where is this money? 100%. You know, we've got examples to lean on too. the child care agreements, the forthcoming dental care agreements that are negotiated agreements between the provinces and the federal government create good examples of what the negotiation process can look like. And we hope that provinces across the country are are knocking on Minister Bennett's door and the prime minister's door and saying we need this money now um, because the evidence is there. Canadians mental health is is struggling. Sarah, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. Sarah Kennell is a National Director of Public Policy at the Canadian Mental Health Association. They want to know where is the money? There was an initial $875 million that was supposed to have been spent or budgeted by now. This is according to the Liberal Party's 2021 election platform for mental health in transfers to the provinces. And that money has not materialized. And they're saying, listen, this is needed. We know how much people's mental health has suffered, particularly during the pandemic. And this money, there's not a peep yet about where it is or when it is coming. Called Keep It Local. Now, this is where we're highlighting local farms to make sure that whenever possible, you do keep it local when buying your produce, just so you can help support some other farms and families out there. So today's edition, we are going to introduce you to Man Farms. It's a wine estate. It's got a long history of providing providing quality produce, and it turns out wine as well, to the community. Joining us now is Gurleen Mann, Operations Manager at the farm. Good morning. Good morning. How now, are you? I'm good, thank you. Tell me, how did you get into making wine? Yeah, so my youngest brother is our winemaker. Um, we are berry farmers, so we've been making berries, or growing berries for years, over 40 years, and my uh, parents actually got my youngest brother into winemaking uh, out of our berries that we grow. So was it something like, hey, we should try doing something else with all these berries? Yeah, pretty much. We try our best to create products and experiences um, utilizing the things that we grow. Um, we, you know, we've definitely tried to um, uh, innovate our, our creation. So wine was just, you know, something that was along those lines. Okay. And I'm looking on your website here too, Gerline. And do I see that you guys offer goat yoga? Yeah, we do actually. Yeah. We've been doing it for, for over three years now. So that's something that I, I host on the farm. (laughs) Okay. How does that work? Tell me about this. Yeah, so goat yoga is a lot of fun. Uh, basically, goat yoga is exactly what it sounds. It's yoga with goats. So we have uh, these beautiful baby goats that are part of the farm. And when you book a class, you get to come into our barn and um, uh, set up your mat. And then the goats will be there. And, you know, an instructor will lead you through a class. And uh, goats can jump around, hop around. Some of them might even... Uh, uh, you know, do their business on your mat. And <laughs> after that, well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it is, you're on a farm. So it is what it is. And then after class, 
will serve them with a glass of wine or food or whatever the theme is for the class that night. Oh, that is so funny. So you really are doing everything there. But tell me about about the histories, the family's history with berry farming. Yeah, so my parents, my grandparents and my parents started the farm. And uh, we started off by just selling uh, baskets of strawberries on the side of the road. Um, That was actually my job growing up. As a little girl, I would sell baskets of strawberries in a small 10 by 10 Stand. And yeah, we just have really humble beginnings. My parents were immigrants and my parents actually had a other job. So, you know, over the years, we, we started to grow our, our business and our brand and we got to know the community, community got to know us. And um, just, you know, in 2005, my, it was actually my mom's idea. She decided to add a petting zoo to create that tourism farm tourism feeling on the farm. So that's kind of how we started our first expansion from berries. That really is the way that farms have to get by these days, isn't it, Gerlene? Like you kind of have to offer a little bit of everything, make people stop by, check out your farm. Absolutely. You know, as a, I'm now a third generation farmer and um, my dad talks about it all the time where, you know, in order to keep us kids, so there's, there's three uh, kids out of four that are involved in the farm and to, to sustain, you know, the farming lifestyle, to have this be, you know, something that is profitable, we do have to venture out of conventional farming practices. And, you know, we do have a new greenhouse that my brother put in. And so, yeah, you do have to expand and innovate. So what has the last year been like for man farms? There must have been some difficulties with the weather, like fl- was it flooding or whether it was heat, what happened? So we're fortunate uh, to not been affected by the floods. I know many of our farmer friends were. We're on a hill. Um, the last year has been challenging. Definitely with the weather this year has been very, very challenging for us with the with the heavy rainfall. Um, uh, with the heat last year, yeah, it, it was very horrible. A lot of our crops were affected. Uh, but you know, we're we're quite. Um, we're quite resilient. Uh, that's kind of how our parents raised us. And we try our best to make things, make, make you know, um, lemonade out of lemons. And we do have a new greenhouse, again, that my father and my brother put in. And that's definitely opened up other avenues to, um, you know, help with, with uh, the weather constraints. And what has, what's the crop like right now? There should be strawberries coming in right about now. Yeah, yeah, the crop is beautiful. We're fortunate to be able to grow strawberries. I know a lot of farmers have difficulties with that, but the crop is beautiful. I'm getting excited for raspberry season, and uh, yeah, the crop is is gorgeous. Okay, so when when are the strawberries going to be ready? The strawberries are ready now, so they've been ready for a while. Uh, We're actually quite well into strawberry season, so if you're you're, uh, someone that wants strawberries, now is the time. Oh, okay. So get on that. Now, how do you organize that? Because people can come to the farm, people can pick as well. Yeah. So we are, we offer a you pick experience where uh, you can come by and, you know, we'll provide you with a bucket and you can go into the farm and pick your own. You can purchase the berries directly from our farm, or you can head into a bunch of farm markets uh, in Vancouver and White Rock uh, where, where you can purchase our berries there. 
Okay. And what's the support been like, Gerlene, from the community, from the people? Do you, do you feel like perhaps we've gotten a better understanding of kind of where our food comes from, given all the challenges of the past year? I definitely think so. I think uh, for sure the pandemic, you know, really raised a spotlight on local businesses and and farmers were definitely, you know, we, we received a lot of support. And I think just a lot of the adversity that we faced as a population, as a community, as a world in the past few years, that's really gotten us to be introspective and, you know, start to have empathy for our local neighbors, our local you know, businesses and farmers. So I think, you know, we've really felt that and we wouldn't be where we are without the support of of local and in our community. Well, that's so nice. And of course, we want to help support. So tell us your website. Tell us how people can come visit because the weather's going to be good starting this weekend. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about that. Uh, So you can find us on Instagram at Man Farms. Uh, You can find us online on our website, www.manfarms.com. Uh, we're on TikTok as well, Man Farm. Um, and uh, yeah, my parents are on there on social. They're, they're really fun and funny. So yeah, and it's Man with two A's and one N. We will definitely be checking it out. Best of luck. Thanks, Gerlene. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Gerlene Mann, who's the operations manager at Man Farms. That's M A A N. Man Farms out in Abbotsford there. Check them out. Strawberry crop is good. You know what that means? That means I'm going to be going out and picking up some strawberries this weekend. Get down to work with some strawberry recipes. And that's a good sign for a lot of the farmers in the Fraser Valley who need to get those crops out. And the weather has not been great for planting. It is starting to get good. So yes, try to support your local farms whenever you can. Well, let's talk about food in our schools. Boy, this is such a hot topic. And we know because we were chatting about it just last week on the show. Our Raji Silhal had a story for us and she has an update this morning. Good morning, Raji. Yeah, Simi. So basically, the Ministry of Health wanted to change some food guidelines. Food guidelines. Um, you know, they've got a version already, uh, but they wanted to edit the version for kids at school. And the early draft was showing that they wanted to ban sweet treats in schools. And boy, was it controversial because uh, they wanted to get rid of these sugary sweets that we know are in schools a lot. Some people will say they're not, but you know what? I have a kindergartner and I know. So yes, you do. When there's (laughs) Halloween, Valentine's Day, Christmas, birthday treats, popsicle days, simi, hot dog days, pizza days. Honestly, it's like every single day there is some exposure to to sweet stuff. Um, And when the kids have sweet treats, they don't eat their lunches. They eat the donuts and stuff instead. Well, uh, it created a bit of a stir amongst the packs and that's the uh, parent associations. And they said, you know, we need to keep these. We need to keep these sweet treats because uh, they provide fundraising opportunities, but also uh, they provide fun for the kids. Well, the NDPs have done a quiet 180 on this. Uh, no flashy announcement, just an update to an article in a local newspaper. Um, so they're no longer going to ban these in these foods from the classrooms. Now, 
It was a pretty bold move in the first place and one that I did get excited about because uh, I have a major sweet tooth and I try to limit how much sugar my kids have. And I felt like once my kid went to kindergarten, it was just so beyond me. Um, But they have done their 180 on this. So now it's not going to take place. Um, And I think that what it came down to probably for them was that if you limit parents' ability to do things that fit squarely in the quote unquote parenting column of life, like food choices fit pretty squarely there, I think you're going to be met with some pushback. And uh, NDPs, I, I bet, are feeling uh, a bit nervous after, you know, the hear- people hearing that their tax dollars are going to that $800 million museum. I think that right. they don't need another soft controversy. <laughs> well, the, the sugar ban in school, the possible sugar ban in school, it already upset the, the PAC groups because of the fundraising pops possibilities it was going to get rid of, like, you know, no more bake sales and popsicle sales. And Karen Kirkpatrick, she was very vocal about her displeasure for the proposed change in the first place. She's an MLA for West Van Cap. And I know we have to have healthy food, but there are those times when there's a birthday party or there's some kind of celebration and a parent wants to bring some cupcakes into the class or they want to bring, um, you know, a pastry or something that's kind of fun for the kids to celebrate with. Well, that also under the guideline would not be something that, that you know, a, a teacher might have to police. And so, It was just that fun component. We don't want to make it stressful in terms of our food choices. We still want food to be fun and to be celebratory. And there were parents also who just had concerns that their kids, you know, only eat certain kinds of foods. And sometimes it's not always healthy, you know, the healthiest foods. But for whatever reason, it may just be something that that young person is focused on. And it's the only thing for a period of time in their life that that they will eat. You know, this is so interesting because to me, this was an overreach in that I think education would have been better here. Kids are such sponges about this stuff. Like, let's make healthy eating fun. Let's find a way to incorporate, you know, healthy eating days into the curriculum as opposed to just saying we're banning these other things outright. I feel like that would have helped a little bit more. Yeah, I think schools are doing a pretty good job these days of educating kids about eating the rainbow and they know that vegetables are good for them. And my kindergartner has planted various vegetables at school in their garden plot. Um, but I tell you what, Simi, at the end of the day, she sure does love a donut. <laughs> They're going to give her one at school. <laughs> She's going to go for as many as possible. Um, I, I get it. Like food is so fun. Sweets are the absolute best. I have a sweet tooth myself. I'm definitely one of these people that would consider themselves addicted to sugar. But an all-out ban on sugar like and calling certain foods junk food, that is a bit extreme because it sets kids up to have an unhealthy relationship with food too. When you all-out ban something that you know a lot of people are having, it can have the opposite effect and then the kids can go for it even more. But hear me out. I do think that parents need some help from the system on this too. I know sweets at school are not occasional. They're not the rare treat, right? They're having them very frequently. Um, And my zucchini chocolate cupcakes, they do not compete with a massive uh, sprinkled donut when (laughs) put in front of a kindergartner. So... I'm very attuned to this demographic of five-year-olds and what they like to eat. And it's, uh, it's hard. Carrot sticks against, uh, you know, birthday cake. So I would love to see some support from 
the school, like something to curb that. Like maybe they they limit uh, the the packs a little bit. Maybe the packs can focus on other kinds of fundraisers. Like I went to a car wash the other day, a car wash fundraiser. I love how you make that sound like it's such a foreign idea. This used to be a right? very big thing when I was a I kid, know. a car wash fundraiser. And they were so much fun to do. And this was such a riot seeing kids doing something together to raise money, all the teamwork, the laughs. They did a terrible job washing my car. Just awful. Like maybe it wasn't even improved. But that wasn't the point. That's, that's not the no, point. No, it wasn't. But you don't get any of those lessons when you sell uh, boxed chocolate almonds. Like that's not going to happen. So I feel like maybe there's like a middle ground we could reach. Maybe teachers could be left to keep the kids uh, you know, not eating too many sweets in the class. Um, parents could could think about how often they're sending treats. Um, you know, schools have come a long way in this uh, area. We they no longer sell pop in vending machines at schools. Like that's a that's a policy shift over time. So maybe there's something to be said about parental responsibility. Here's Karen Kirkpatrick again. There also has to be parental responsibility. There has to be nutrition taught in schools. Um, there have to be all of those other things. And it can't just simply be, if a child can eat something, they're going to eat something. There's got to be a, uh, an educational component about our relationship with food. And that doesn't happen just in school. It, ha- it happens in school, but it also happens at home. It's, uh, it, it's like a child who, you know, can eat peanut butter. There's, I mean, there's already a kind of goalposts in terms of what a child knows they can have and, and they can't have. Um, and and uh, you, you have to have cafeterias and other food options for children that do have those healthy choices. And so the guidelines should increase as they are. They're, they should be increasing the percentage of foods sold in the cafeterias that are healthy foods. Um, and that's the direction that they're going. Well, that sounds good. So it does sound like for parents out there, things are not going to change. Everybody can breathe a sigh of relief, right, Raji? <laughs> yes. And meanwhile, it's on the table for people to think about, at least as a topic of discussion, like how can yeah. we put a little bit of limits on on how many sweets the kids are getting at school? But if there's a donut involved, Raji is in. <laughs> Raji's in on that one. <laughs> I'll take two, please. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> Thanks for that, Raji.